0: Let's do this. Okay. (laughs) Hi, Kristen. Good to have you on the show.
1: Thanks for having me, Hardy. Nice to meet you.
0: So uh, for everybody who doesn't know you, could you please tell us a bit about yourself?
1: Well, the least interesting thing about me, I like to say, is that I used to be a professional athlete. I was considered the best woman big mountain extreme skier in the world. For 12 years, I was also voted the most fearless woman athlete in North America by the outdoor industry, beating women in all sports disciplines, not just skiing. Um, That's all in my past. I think that what I'm doing now is way more interesting, which is I have uh, leveraged and and learned from my uh, experience as a professional fearless athlete to become a fear and anxiety expert. And I wrote a book called The Art of Fear that has really taken off and uh, I have a lot of, I mean, 30 plus years of real world practical in the dirt experience, dealing with a tremendous amount of fear, risking my life on a daily basis, um, doing some things right by fear, doing some things wrong by fear that have led me to come up with some pretty unique and out of the box concepts on what to do about fear that people haven't heard before.
0: Got it. So um, before we talk about your book and everything that you're currently doing, um, could you please tell our listeners like how you got into skiing and tell us the story behind it, like how you got so successful eventually? So,
1: I didn't come from a rich family. And it's really rare in a very expensive sport like skiing to not come from a rich family if you're going to make it. Because most professional skiers, certainly racers uh, and mogul skiers or people that are on the World Cup, um, have the best trainers that money can buy their whole lives, go to high school ski academies, all of that. Aside from a couple lessons in second grade, I never had any formal coaching. And I actually didn't even have any ambition to become a professional skier. Um, and all of a sudden just by hanging out with some friends and competing in moguls because that's what they were doing I found myself on the U.S. ski team for moguls which pissed a lot of people off because I just came out of nowhere and then um, the big mountain extreme skiing for which I was really known for hadn't even been a a way to make a living or be a professional athlete um, when I arrived on the scene and I just started jumping off cliffs for the film cameras. And, and and why
0: why did you get into skiing in the first place? Sorry to interrupt here, but yeah. <laughs>
1: Because uh, the the high school, my high school was offering a get out of school early on Wednesday program.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Come on, will you?
2: (laughs) (laughs) God,
1: it's like you know, my I got free skis, free lessons, got out of school a couple hours early on Wednesdays in second grade. I'm like, sign me up! I'm out of (laughs) here.
2: And I wasn't really all
1: that into skiing until I was a teenager. Until I was probably. Sixteen years old. Then I became obsessed with it, and then um, I really became obsessed with it when I turned. 19. What
0: does it mean, like being obsessed with it? Like how how many hours were you training each week? Like,
1: I if if the lifts were open, I was skiing, and I, I remember <laughs> I had a job up at a uh, snowbird in Utah, and uh, I would have to be to work at four o'clock, but the lifts stayed open till four forty-five, so I would be late every day you know and i was i was in so much pain and so sore from skiing and i was skiing moguls a lot and i mean i could barely walk what what
0: what what does mogul mean
1: moguls are um you can see them in the olympics they're uh competitively it's like a 30 second course with two airs and these big lumps of snow that get formed by natural skier patterns but in the world cups they're actually made with a and you go, you know, you just kind of ram through them. It's very mm-hmm. fast, serious, mm-hmm. crazy with two airs in between. Um, so a lot of your points come from um, the magnificent of the airs that you catch. Not, it's not a speed race.
0: Got it. So um, so, so, you're gunned into skiing because uh, you could get home earlier right? Yeah. Well, get out of school. Oh, get out of school. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, what happened then? So when, when you were 16 and 19, you really got obsessed with skiing, but what happened then? So,
1: well, um, I just all of a sudden realized that I was actually pretty good at it. And, Mm. um, I had, you know, I think what makes somebody become a world-class professional athlete is that all the stars align and, um, I had the right opportunity. You know, I fortunately lived in a town that had skiing. Um, I had the right body type. Uh, I had the right mindset. Mm. Um I had the right relationship with fear. I had the right insecurities and demons uh, that were driving me to get better and better. You know, I had the need to prove something. I had, the need to show off, the desire to show off. I, I wanted to get love and attention. I found something that I was really, really good at that was very, very difficult. And next thing you know, I started getting a lot of attention for how good I was becoming. And that mm. helped me to, you know, try to get better and better. You know, I, I had the right insecurities, demons, all of that.
0: May, um, could you unpack that for us? Because I think it's a big part of being a success and it doesn't matter what you're doing. So, um, yeah. Could you please unpack that for us? Like the desire that you've had, the insecurities, the fear, and so on and so forth.
1: Well, I'll I'll start with a story then. I was mm. at uh, this, uh, those who are skiers would know who this person is, but Warren Miller, he's a very famous filmmaker. And mm. um, I was a guest of him at his house. And, and there were four, uh, three, four professional athletes there. There was a Heisman Trophy winner. There was a guy who won the Tour de France three times. There was the male equivalent of me in skiing. And uh, we were at a basically a 70-person dinner of um, city groups, most wealthy clients. You know, most of them were billionaires. And uh, right before dinner was served, uh, the organizer came up to the four of us and said, oh, we just realized there's four world-class athletes here. We'd like to have you guys give a speech after dinner to explain what it takes to be a world-class athlete. And of course, none of us were eating. Scott, my uh, the male counterpoint of me, was so nervous that I don't think he breathed, I don't think he took a breath for the next hour. He's like a really shy guy, right? And we're all just like racking our brains like, what is it, was it? Like we, we... and, um, Thank God I went last because those poor bastards, like, they just (laughs) literally didn't know what to say. They're like, I don't know. I just. Oh,
0: no. (laughs) So Um, so it was like really awkward for them.
1: (laughs) Oh, my gosh. It was so awkward. Oh, man. You know, not, I don't think you learn from experience. You learn, and we were all retired. You you learn Mm. from reflecting on the experience. And these guys hadn't reflected on the experience of what it took for them to become a world class athlete. I, however, have. I have made it my life's mission to actually reflect on what my experience was, what I see in other athletes. Um, and so the reason why I can talk about this stuff openly is because I have spent so much time contemplating this and facilitating this with people, figuring out exactly what works, what hasn't. And so the speech that I gave that night um, was about having the right insecurities and wounds driving us. Mm. And I, that was what my 20 minutes speech was about and I said at one point, am I right? And I gestured at guys. And other you were just guys.
0: freestyling it, basically. Right. right. And
1: these other three guys nodded their heads so hard, I thought they were going to break their necks. <laughs> so, um, you know, those who are willing to ad- be honest with themselves and willing to admit it to themselves will recognize that there's always some sort of demon or pathological, you know, reason behind Our intense motivation to become the best. And especially if you're Mm -hmm. going to become the best in the world at a sport where the the consequences of failure are death, you know, you've got to have some seriously strange motivations driving you. And so for me personally, um, my motivations were fear and anger. And it's funny because I was considered fearless and I was a celebrated warrior, you know, like this Mm -hmm. woman who was like, you know, considered a a goddess in that world. And um, I was entirely motivated by fear of failure, fear of being invisible, fear of not being loved, um, fear of not being considered, fear of not being special. I was more afraid of not being seen or recognized or loved than I was of jumping off cliffs or risking my life in the mountains. You know, um, as for the anger, I had a lot of anger at my dad. Uh you know, I had kind of a fiery personality anyway and a sport like skiing is a very aggressive, masculine sport that requires a lot of arrogance and and toughness and um I mean it's it's a it's a you really have to find your masculine, tough, aggressive side in the sport of skiing. Not all sports are like that. Um and my anger kind of fueled my passion. It just showed up as passion. You know, it didn't show up as anger at my father, but the anger at my father was transformed into passion because I had a healthy relationship with my anger instead of a resistance relationship with my anger, which we'll talk about more, I'm sure. And so anger and fear, that's what drove me.
0: So uh, you've you've used those insecurities and those fears to really motivate you all day, every day in your career.
1: Right. And of those fears and that anger has been extinguished. I mean, I was able to express it quite a bit in skiing. One more thing I'll say about the anger. um, Probably the reason why I got so good is because I was being competitive with the men. Mm. And um, I had such... Anger towards my father, and it was kind of showing up as anger towards men, or wanting to kick the men's butts and show them a thing or two. Mm. And that really worked for me <laughs> because I wasn't trying to be the best woman in the world. I was trying to be the best in the world period. And so the you know, the people that I were comparing myself were to were the men. And mm. people would come up to me and say, oh, you're the best woman skier I've ever seen. I'd be like, fuck you, you know.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I, say, I really love like, this. because, like not, uh,
1: Yeah, it's like yeah. The, the women weren't very good. So the men were, and I wanted to kick their butts. So did mm. I know any of this was going on back then? Absolutely not.
0: Mm. Yeah, and I really love this because, um, on social media, there's so much gender, uh, chatter out there and everybody's talking about, yeah, gender this and gender that. And I really love it that you are approaching this from like the perspective that you wanted to become the, the greatest in the world instead of just being the greatest woman out there. So, um, could you please unpack for our listeners, like what happened then when you became obsessed with skiing? So, uh. Yeah, did you went to, to did you make any championships right out of the gate or what happened?
1: I just wanted to ski, and I have a career ambition. So I figured if I'm going to be you know skiing this much, that I may as well turn it into a career. And I thought, well, maybe I'll be a ski instructor. And I lasted two hours. I'm like, oh my god, <laughs> why, oh my god. right? Um, I couldn't do that. And that was very, very young. And,
2: um, and
1: then I just started, uh, doing whatever, just saying yes to things that made sense. Like, Hey, are you interested in doing this photo shoot? Yes. Hey, you know, would you like to audition for the ski movie? Yes. Hey, you want to come with us to on this trip? We're going to be competing in moguls. Hey, do you want to compete in this aerial competition? You know, and, I said yes. And for the longest time, I took last place in everything. And um, it's certainly in the competitions, uh, but I just loved it. I just wanted to ski and I wanted to have friends to ski with. And this is what they were doing. and, And just how I how I became a mogul skier on the U.S. ski team because that's where I really started. Was I was just competing with my friends, and next thing you know, I was winning everything. And next thing you know, I was trying out for the U.S. team. And next thing you know, I made the U.S. ski team. And I never had any ambition to mm. get on the U.S. ski team. And all of a sudden, there I was. And uh, it, I was all of a sudden in over my head though because I wasn't, I hadn't been groomed to be there and and, you know I was just having fun and all of a sudden I had a thousand people watching me and cameras in my face and I was it was not the right place for me but as for the extreme skiing that was and I had to make a choice I had to do one or the other because they're basically two different sports um and I will say too I was skiing in jeans until I was 20 years old you know I didn't have any money you know I was trying to pay for college um And by age 23, without any formal training, I make it on the U.S. ski team (laughs) within three years of buying my first pair of ski pants. And that same year, I was called the best woman big mountain extreme skier in the world. And um, what happened, how I became the best woman big mountain extreme skier in the world is um, I had talked to this cinematographer into auditioning my skiing for his upcoming movie and I drove to Squaw Valley, which was like a, I don't know, about a ten-hour, eleven-hour drive all night in my junky car with no heater in the middle of January. Pulled an all-nighter, showed up in the parking lot, got on the lift, and with all these uh, guys that were famous, you know, for jumping off cliffs and being in the movies, and we went up to this cliff band, and they started jumping these cliffs, and I'd never jumped off a cliff before, and I. Saw what they were doing. They were throwing a back scratcher, which was a trick of the day where skier arches his back and touches the tails of his skis in between his shoulder blades. And I'm like, okay, well, clearly what I need to do to get in one of these movies is to jump off one of these cliffs and throw a back scratcher. So that's what I did. And I picked about a 20, 25 foot cliff. First one of my life. Camera's rolling. Three, two, one, go. I jumped off this thing, uh, threw a back scratcher, never even seen a back scratcher. You know, figured out how to do it somehow.
2: (laughs) Great, landed
1: landed it and (laughs) skied away. And this is on skinny skis for you skiers out there. Like this is back in the early '90s, and did this two more times before the film shoot was over. And nobody had ever seen a girl do anything like that before. I had no idea. And so by the end of the week, by the end of the day, everyone in Squaw Valley knew my name. By the end of the week, everyone in the ski industry knew my name. And by the end of the month, I was being called the best in the world. And um, pretty much every major magazine around the world.
0: Crazy story. Yeah. So what was going through your head when you were competing the first time with all those pros? Like, yeah, where you like very scared and anxious? Or...
1: Well, here's the thing. I just got inducted into the U.S. Ski and Snowboard Hall of Fame two weeks ago. Hmm. And so right now I feel kind of more willing to talk about my personal experience. Um, as a skier because it's fresh and it's something that I've been thinking about a lot. But I don't really actually spend a lot of time talking about my ski career unless it's in the context of helping people um, figure out their own ways to uh, achieve higher performance states, flow states, what to do about fear, um, what to do about negativity. Um, So ask the question again and let me put it put it in, a, in the context where it's less about me and it's more about the audience.
0: So um, what would you tell to everybody who is going through those competition times where they're like competing with very, very high professional athletes? So uh, what would you tell them?
1: Well, I would tell this to athletes, but I would also tell this to people that are about to give a speech, people that are about to launch a business, people that just want to be, uh, high performers in mm. any arena. Um, probably the single most important, uh, personal work that you can do in order to be magnificent is to have a healthy relationship with your fear. Mm. Because if you're going to do big things with your life, like this is your comfort zone. And in this You're still going to feel fear, like fears with us every single moment of every single day. We have this thing called the amygdala, you know, this part of the brain, the oldest part of the brain, two almond shaped nuggets at the top of the spine. And it's the manufacturing plant for fear. And what a lot of us don't realize, because we're in denial of this, is that all information comes into our system, gets run through this primary filter first, where the, the amygdala is determining safe or not safe. And if it's not safe, then the amygdala will manufacture fear and it's a feeling, you know, it'll show up in your body and it's supposed to flow like water in between 10 to 90 seconds uh, into, through, and out of your body and take you into heightened states of awareness. Um, The thing is though, to the amygdala, everything is a perceived threat. And so, Mm -hmm. especially in today's really fast moving world where a lot is going on, um, I mean, the amygdala is i, I like to joke—cranking out fear faster than Joey Chestnut eats a hot dog—and uh, so fear's with us all the time. And if we don't have a healthy, inclusive relationship with that fear, then it's going to be a holdback. But if we do have a healthy, inclusive relationship with that fear, it's going to be the very thing that actually improves our performance. So, um, what I. Was doing during my ski career. I mentioned I did some things right by fear and I did some things wrong by fear. I also mentioned that you don't learn from experience, you learn from reflecting on the experience. So after I retired in 2003, I studied Zen voraciously for 15 years, a Zen approach to life. Um, Let's get to that in a second because I don't want to get off target, but ask me that next. Uh, So I realized in studying Zen, the things that I did right and the things that I did wrong by fear Mm. and what it looks like. And I did both, you know, I had a paradox going on. I both had a radically healthy relationship with fear and a radically unhealthy relationship with fear. And you have to recognize that I was risking my life for a living. Um, like the consequences of failure I mentioned are death. And so I was dealing with it more fear than the average person. Like the amygdala was really cranking out a lot of fear. And the things that I did right by fear made me really, really good at a very, very difficult sport. And the things that I did wrong by fear led to burnout, PTSD, more and more injuries, Mm -hmm. eventually hating my sport, um, which I recovered from, but that's another story. I mean, Those were the consequences of having an unhealthy relationship with fear in my life. But the consequences for people not having a healthy relationship with their fear, it's different for everyone, 7.5 billion different people. You know, if you don't have a healthy relationship with fear, it can show up as anxiety disorders, panic attacks, insomnia, monkey mind being in your head all the time. It can show up as anger issues. For sure, it shows up as underperforming um, I mean, PTSD, the list goes on and on and on, like any kind of emotional issue that people can develop over time in their career, in their sport. Um, it probably 99.9% of the time comes from having an unhealthy relationship with fear. And so that's the Mm. best thing that you can do to enhance your performance.
0: And I think in this day and age, age especially, there's so, so many people that are suffering from anxiety attacks, depression, suicidal thoughts and all those things. So what do you mean by saying that you need to develop a healthy relationship with fear?
2: Here's what
1: it looks. Here's what it doesn't look like. Let's do that first. Right now in our culture, we're taught to, you know, the language, conquer and overcome your fear. It's false evidence appearing real the acronym, <laughs> right? Um, it's something to be controlled. Like emotions are seen in our culture, taught in our culture. Um, like emotional intelligence is seen as our ability to intellectually understand our emotions and control them. We're mm. studying the science of emotions. Like we're trying to understand them. We go to a therapist to shrink and talk about our fear, our anxiety, and make no mistake, anxiety is fear, fear is anxiety. We've just started calling it anxiety because nobody wants to call it fear. But if you have an anxiety disorder, it's a fear disorder, you hmm. know? Um, specifically, anxiety is recirculating fear. Um, so all Could these, you
0: unpack that for us, please?
1: Um, well, anxiety, like we just don't like to use the word fear. Like imagine a guy on Wall Street, saying, I'm pickled in fear, you know, he would be fired in a, <laughs> he would just be the laughingstock. They'd, you know, we don't want to call it fear. We call it anything but fear. But if he says, I have a lot of anxiety or I have an anxiety disorder, we kind of expect him to have that. If he doesn't have that, we think that he's not working hard enough, right? So it's just a way in our culture that we've learned to reframe it so that it's a little bit more acceptable. We call fear worry, nerves, nervousness, um, stress. Stress is made up of fear, but stress also includes other things. Um, but anxiety is only made up of fear. Uh, specifically, it's recirculating fear when there's no more perceived threat. Mm. And and anxiety comes from not having a healthy relationship with fear. Yeah. Um, so, where anxiety disorders come from is this and, and really pay attention because if somebody with an anxiety disorder goes to a doctor and, or even a psychologist, they usually can't tell them why they have the problem. They'll just Mm -hmm. offer them, you know, like, Oh, you should start meditating. You should go to yoga here. Take this pill. Um, a lot of people smoke pot to not deal with it. Like, Like we really haven't, been given an explanation of why anxiety is so prevalent. I'm mm. gonna give you one right now in absolutely clear, crystal clear terms. So you ready? Sure. So we have this fear and I love to personify it. So imagine fear is like a child and anybody mm. that has children or it, have you seen children? So we're all on the same page,
2: right? Sure. Anybody
1: that's seen a child, you know, a child's upset. Child has something to say. And we've learned how to fight this child called fear. We've learned how to ignore it. We've learned how to be in denial of it. We've rationalized it away, saying it's false evidence appearing real. We use cognitive behavioral therapy, right, to rationalize it away. We try to meditate it away. We do breathing exercises to -hmm. breathe it away. And it all works. The child goes away. For me, during my ski career, I was really good at ignoring fear. And so it's, it's like, this, this is how I'm treating this child. I'm ignoring this child. Anybody that has a child knows if you do these things with a child, what happens? Does yeah, the child, they, yeah,
0: they get angry again eventually.
1: <laughs> right. Um, they will not be denied. Like, they're going to mm-hmm. come back. They may go away for a spell. And you think, well, that really worked. I breathed away my fear. I rationalized it away. I ignored it. Well, then it comes back. A little bit louder next time. Mm. Staying a little bit longer. It's a little bit harder to ignore it the next time, or rationalize it away. And then it comes back, and now it's really upset and starts to get
0: angry. <laughs> and this is
1: where anger comes. You need from, to
0: meditate right? more. <laughs> right? Just kidding.
1: And anger. And so then next thing you know, it becomes your full-time job: meditating, breathing exercises, <laughs> going to the therapist, <laughs> like, rationalizing, rationalizing, right? And after I find you can get away with all of these things that we're taught to do about fear for about 10 years tops. And then yeah. you have some problems
2: mm. and
1: the problems will show up like I look at look at fear as being locked in the basement. Right. We lock it in the basement temporarily. It comes out. It will find a way to come out. It'll burn the house down if it has to. Eventually it'll show up. Because fear is very clever in one of three ways. The more and more Mm. you deny it, it's rightful place in your life and don't listen to it. It'll either show up as an exaggerated version of itself in the form of recirculating anxiety. Mm. Like fear is just there all the time, just like pay attention to me, right? Or it'll show up in panic attacks or it'll show up as irrational fear like phobias, um, OCD, that kind of thing. Hmm. that's the one way that undealt with fear will show up. The second way, it'll get really clever. It'll show up redirected in other ways that don't seem like fear at all, such as anger. Like 95% of what we know is modern anger is nothing more than undealt with fear locked in the basement that's now, it's like, look at the, the, the kid that doesn't want to deal with this scary home life. Fear feels really powerless, hmm. but he has to feel something has emotions, you know, they get all blurred together. So he'll feel anger instead, instead Mm. of, or if somebody doesn't want to feel fear, doesn't want to feel anger because it's not polite, they'll feel sadness instead. You know, men will tend to go to anger. Women will go to sadness. Um, Depression, the word depression is Latin for press down. Um, If you press down emotions, they become depressed. And so too do you. So it'll show up as depression, hmm. it'll show up as anger, it'll show up as sadness, or it'll show up as blame. It's like, I don't want to deal with my fear, so I'm going to make all y'all deal with it for me, you know. Um, so that's the second way that it can show up from the basement. The third way is it'll become really clever. See, fear is an emotion in your body. It's a feeling, a sensation in your body. It's scientifically proven that it starts there. It starts with a feeling. but if we don't deal with it in an honest way, then it'll hijack our minds and show up in our thoughts and run its agenda. You know, The second your guard is dropped, maybe in the middle of the night when you're trying to sleep, then it'll wake you up and then it'll chatter then in your mind. So that's where insomnia comes from. That's where a monkey mind comes from. And so next thing you know, we think that fear's in our head, which leads to it more into our bodies, which leads to it being in our head and it's become cyclical. And you just have this recirculating fear in your body, fear in your head, fear in your body. Um, that's also because you're not listening to that child. Like mm. the most important thing you can do is to have an honest, healthy relationship with that child. Treat it well. Um, treat it with respect and consideration. If for no other reason, then it will be. It will grow up to be a healthy child, and it won't act so irrational, crazy, immature, and weird. Hmm. So that's what Uh you want to do about fear and why.
0: (laughs) And what to do about fear?
1: It's very, very counterintuitive, especially because we're we're so far down the rabbit hole of trying to conquer and overcome and fight and control our fear. Hmm. But uh, instead of doing this, but actually do this and turn towards your fear and start what I call a fear practice, which is having a healthy relationship with fear, like starting to treat it the way that you would treat a child. If you were a, a good parent, you know, what would a good parent do? You know, what would a good parent do? They'd spend some quality time with that child. They ask what's, what, what's wrong. Emotions want to be felt,
2: hmm.
1: that's what they want. Spend some time feeling them. There are basically four levels on how to deal with fear and uh, that I've seen people deal with fear. And I'll rank them from worst to to best. There's resistance to fear, which is taught, which is almost everybody is taught this. And it's what we all do. And at least all those problems I outlined. That's the first level. The second level is acceptance. Acceptance of fear that it's normal and natural. The third level is you learn how to embrace it. And then the fourth level is you learn how to be intimate with it. Mm -hmm. And if you can move from a resistance approach to acceptance, to embracing, to intimate once you get to the place where you have an intimate relationship with fear that's where I did some things right by fear in my career I had an intimate relationship with fear and it was that intimacy with fear like standing at the top of a mountain where it's 55 degrees it's in Alaska it's never been skied before they're about to film me You know, the helicopter is hovering right there and it's 50 bucks, 50 bucks, 50
2: bucks.
1: (laughs) Right. I'm not quite sure where I'm going. Everything looks different from the top than from the Mm -hmm. helicopter. Um, There's a cliff in the middle that I'm going to jump. And if I jump too far to the left, I'm going to break both my legs. If I jump too far to the right, it's going to be not going to make it into the film. But I'm not quite sure where it is. And um, and then the guide gets on the radio and says, hey, it might avalanche. You know, have a plan if it does. um, You know, it's a lot of fear, and so what I did was I was having moments where I would become intimate with that fear, Hmm. and that fear is actually here once you do that to take you into heightened states of awareness, presence, bring your A game to what you're about to do. It's like me plus fear equals super me. You know, like. I'm Batman, fear is Robin. Like, we're stronger together than apart. And so, that intimacy with fear before I pushed off, that's what took me into the zone or into a flow state. And and little else does. Mm. Like, if you have an intimate relationship with fear, then flow comes for free. And it works that way in speeches, in starting a business. And then there's no long term consequences of blocking out the fear, you know. Instead, the fear is actually your greatest asset and ally helping you bring your A-game so as not to fail. (laughs) Now, fear of failure is supposed to help us, not hurt us. And it it entirely depends on what your relationship is with that fear of
0: failure. Mm. Yeah, and I think um, because I, I, I was talking to so, so many people on the podcast, and they're like, a lot of people are big fans of meditation and are, everybody's meditating nowadays, but I think also it's like really um, a cosmetic reaction to something way, way, way more deeper. And it's just addressing the symptoms of something and not the root cause and the root problems. And um, I also don't think that meditation and so therapy and all those things, they might have a time and place for certain people. But I think um, there, there needs to be, the, the root cause needs to be addressed instead of just the symptoms of, of something underlying there.
1: I agree. And I'm glad that you brought up meditation. Um, it, Eastern meditation,
2: great. Mm. You
1: know, Eastern meditation is, there's no goals in it. You just sit mm. and you just observe. And you have some distance between, like, you can observe your mind. It's not you, you're not it. You can observe your feelings. You can spend some time with your feelings. It's not about trying to feel better, it's not about trying to get through a day or sleep better. You know, these meditation apps in the Western world have Mm. now introduced goals to meditation. Yeah. And H- it's how made. long
0: are you meditating five minutes ten minutes? Uh, <laughs> what does your meditation instructor wear? Oh, yeah, this <laughs> it's uh, yeah.
1: right. So when you introduce goals to meditation you westernize <laughs> it and next thing you know Especially if you're meditating in order to feel better yeah. um, Then like in Zazen Zen might my, my mm. st- I study Zen Zazen is there's a saying Zen is good for nothing Right. If you're meditating to have it be good for something,
2: yeah.
1: then it's symptom control. Mm. Right. Then it's and, and it gets to the point where if you're meditating to calm down your anxiety or to sleep better or, or all of that, then actually the meditation um, is. I hate to say it is actually over time going to make it worse. Mm. Um, and, and you hear about people all the time who. They start meditating and then next thing you know, they have to meditate like two times a day, then they have to meditate yeah. a day, then they have to meditate five times a day, and God forbid if they take a day off. I mean,
2: uh, <laughs> hide the guns
1: if you take a week off because you're just it's just a way for you to continue to not deal with the unpleasant part of life, aka your fear or mm. other negativity.
0: Yeah, and your real problems instead of just yeah because I think like most people like you said they don't want to address their problems and um, they are more interested in this game of meditation and um, it's funny because uh, Headspace emailed me like a couple of days ago and they wanted to sponsor the podcast and I'm not interested because I don't believe in those meditation apps like I think nobody needs somebody to tell them hey you need to sit in a corner and be quiet like (laughs) <laughs> it's just my opinion, but um yeah.
1: well, it's helped a lot of people go from miserable to functional, but it's yeah. not a solution. It's a temporary solution. And so and the, the people that are you know headspace and doing these meditation apps and, and their intentions are very, very good. You know sure, so sure. We'll, we'll give they them want a to we'll improve them,
0: their life yeah
1: Yes. We'll give them an A++ for intentions. but if they really <laughs> want to help people, deal with mm-hmm. their anxiety, for example, at the core or their anger at the core or their feelings of unworthiness or self-esteem or sadness or depression at the core. Um, here's what needs to happen mm. with these meditation apps. I mean, uh, um, let me give you an analogy. So back to the children, I talked about fear. Yeah. Now that's with just one child in Zen, the the number, the is 10,000. That's the traditional number in Zen. We have 10,000 states of being. And because our minds are very dualistic, half of them are good and half of them are bad. So mm-hmm. imagine you had a house full of children and 10,000 children, I know, God forbid, but bear with me. And half of them you've named joy, love, gratitude, forgiveness,
2: mm-hmm. which
1: is what these meditations apps are oftentimes about. Yeah. Um, the other half of your children, you've named fear, anger, sadness, despair. Despite your best intention, would you be able to treat them all the same way?
0: I don't know. <laughs> I
1: don't know. Well, we we're not there. What we're doing is we're we're loving and nurturing and showing off to the world these children over here. Mm. And you know, we have gratitude practice, joy, love. You know, it's all about love, right? Forgiveness, yeah. rushing. <laughs> to forgiveness, right? All these wonderful practices that come from these meditation apps and breathing exercises, breathe in calm, breathe out your fear, right? Over here, we're nurturing and loving and showing off to the world these children. What do we do to these children over here? Duct tape over their mouths, plastic bag over their head, um, lock them in the basement. Like We're breathing away our fear and breathing in our calm and joy and love. And uh, we're trying to replace it. You know, it, it's called spiritual really bypass, you know, yeah. and uh, so these children down in the basement, they go, and what do you think is happening down there? I kind of outlined it already. You know, how would you feel if you were a child who's been locked in the basement and you have, this, have as strong a personality as fear or anger or despair? You know, you'd be screaming and yelling and trying to get out. And so um, there are two ways to live your life. One is to do what I just outlined, where you just love and nurture and show up to the world, these wonderful children over here. And people, I think, think that's Zen. Hmm. It's not like people who meditate in the Eastern world. They're not, you know, the, the image of them sitting on a cushion all blissed out and happy is hard to shake. Like we think that they're just over here and they've gotten rid of this. But actually, Zen is where we see the wisdom that all that life has to offer and we give love and consideration to all our children and so when we're angry we just feel angry when we're sad we feel sad when we're afraid we feel afraid and if you do this then these children have the rightful place in your life you actually do spend some quality time with them when you meditate instead of just trying to get rid of them when you meditate um, and you have an honest relationship with them when you meditate and so What we can do with these meditation apps is, can we have a meditation app where we just turn and spend some quality time with our fear? And what that looks like in practical terms is, can we just find our fear in our bodies and spend some time just feeling it without trying to get rid of it?
2: Hmm.
1: And then put a period at the end of that sentence. Not spend some quality time with your fear, comma, and then now let it go. Because, (laughs) right? that's just going to be more of the same it's going to be like turning to your child like hey you seem to be upset what's wrong if I spend some quality time listening to you then will you shut the hell up that's not going to work right you just need to spend some quality time loving on your child if you want them to calm down and if you want that child to grow up to be a mature adult
0: Yeah, and I think um, with this uh, Western approach of all those things, um, it's also like really disingenuous. Like people are talking so much about, yeah, you need to love somebody, everybody. It's all about love. It's all about (laughs) forgiveness and gratitude. I mean, like, come on, man. Like shit is happening every day. And yeah, people are suffering from depression, anxiety, and all those things are real. And um, people are just chattering too much about those lives. Thing. I think it's, I, I, I don't love it. I don't like it at all, to be honest. So
1: <laughs> It's, I mean, it. it's well-intended, of course.
0: Yeah, of course.
1: <laughs> right, right. But
0: it's yeah, not it's going very well-intended. It's
1: not going to work. It hasn't worked. What we're doing isn't working.
0: Mm-hmm. It's is not working. It's not working.
1: What's the definition of insanity? But
0: nobody, no, but nobody says this. Nobody is saying I,
1: this. I am saying this.
0: Yeah, but you're I'll the I'll only you person, me. probably.
1: Hardy, <laughs> I'll tell you what. It, I have the hardest job in the world because I'm swimming up, upstream. You know, the subtitle of my book is Why Conquering Fear Won't Work and What to Do <laughs> Instead. Yeah. And if I have, if I don't, if I write, like I wrote an article for Forbes magazine about what <laughs> I do, and the whole article is about why we, you know, trying to conquer fear, Puts you at war with fear. You know, look at the word conquer, overcome. It it leaves fear no choice but to fight back. And in this war, we're not going to win. Like, I go into great detail and about what to do instead. We've got to start changing our language about how how we talk about fear. We can't use conquer and fear in the yeah. same anymore. It's disrespectful to fear. Whole article about this, and I give it to them, and they publish it, and they they put the title on it. You know what the title was? Kristen Olmer helps you conquer fear
0: come on you're kidding me right now <laughs> I,
2: have,
1: I have dozens of examples like that
0: i really
2: changed
1: the title but if you actually google my name in forbes magazine the title will be different but if you look at the uh, link it says you know ww forbes slash christian <laughs> overcome fear but that it's still there because they hmm. had already put the link up so no, this has happened. This has happened with Mind Valley. This is when I gave a speech. I talked for 20 minutes about how we have got to stop fighting a war with fear, and we've got to change our life. Mm. Like the most important thing you can do to have a healthier relationship with fear is stop using the word conquering in fear in the same sentence. And they also named my talk. Kristen Ulmer helps you
0: conquer fear. Oh,
1: that's I- ridiculous! I'm yeah. To- so
0: you're alone, <laughs> right?
1: I am absolutely alone, but I am committed. I'm mm-hmm. willing to put the time in to help educate people. I've worked with about 10,000 clients now who have underperforming issues, anxiety issues, insomnia, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, and there was actually a study done at Harvard that mm. really backs up what I'm doing. Um, I wasn't involved in the study. This is done autonomous for me but it was such a relief to find actually some data about it. But let's say you're about to give a speech and you're really nervous, which you should be because you're about to give a speech. It's scary to give a speech. You can do the breathing exercises, breathing in calm, breathing out your anxiety. You can rationalize, I've got this, like I've done it a million times. You know, you could have your friends saying you have nothing to be afraid of. You're going to do great. You know, you can rationalize it away And it works. Four minutes later, you feel better, you go on stage, you give a good speech. But the next time you give a speech, it takes four and a half minutes. The next time you give a speech, it takes five minutes. And eventually you just stop giving speeches altogether because you can't stand how awful it makes you feel to give the speech. So four minutes, whereas this Harvard study done, test does, uh, if you turn towards your fear
2: hmm. and
1: spend some quality time with it, it calms down in four seconds. And you do this without repressing it, or trying to rationalize it away, or being in your head dealing with an emotion intellectually. If you deal with it emotionally instead, where you just allow yourself to feel it in an honest way, uh, much like children do when you give them that kind of consideration, it calms right down. Mm-hmm. And then you can know, also, and you have no long-term consequences. You can also tap into the fear and why it's what it's here to provide for you. Like the universe does want you to succeed. Fear is part of the perfect plan to help you to succeed, then you and fear can go on stage and the fear makes you more sharp and focused while you're giving your speech.
0: Mm. And I think um, another problem with all those meditation uh, techniques and and stuff like that is that people, for instance, they start to meditate um, because they're anxious in the evening, for instance. And um, when they start to meditate, um, then they still get anxious during the meditation. And then it's suddenly about getting the meditation right. Like, oh, man, I'm probably meditating, meditating wrong, and maybe I should use this meditation and that meditation, um, instead of thinking about why they even meditated in the first place. doesn't make sense because they were anxious in the evening. But now it's not anymore at all about the anxiety. It's all about the meditation. I think it's also like a bit... uh yeah it doesn't make a lot of sense to me
1: well to suggest that we can meditate our anxiety away sets us up for wildly unrealistic expectations yeah um you know fear is not like co2 you can't breathe (laughs) it away (laughs) you know you feel better when you do these breathing calm breathe out fear exercises um just because you're having a moment of presence um, because you're saturating your system with oxygen, you know, all those things are great. And perception, you know, if you have the perception that the fear is gone, like that can be really powerful. Hmm. But fear is more like blood. It's just it's just part of you. It's 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 always there. And hmm. it, if you back to the child, like if you actually let me give you another analogy. So you have a fork sticking out of your eye. If you breathe in calm and breathe out your pain, you're going to feel better. If you focus on the parts of your body that um, don't hurt, or if you focus on how much you love your husband or your wife, or how Mm. much just how fill fill your heart with love, you're going to feel better, right? But you still have a fork sticking out of your eye. You (laughs) got to do (laughs)
2: work. Yeah.
1: Right. So I am a big fan of love, joy, gratitude practice, but that's step B. Step A has to be a fear practice. Hmm. We have to have a healthy relationship with the negative part of life before we can just rush to the positive. So look at the positive as like beautiful castle. If you don't build it on a solid foundation, the slightest storm comes in, that castle is going to collapse, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, okay, I just spent two hours meditating, and I, I come out, and I almost get run over by a car. Mm. Like, damn it, the meditation didn't work, right? No, the castle collapsed. Like, there are going to be storms every moment. There are going to be storms. Fear is going to show up, anger, frustration. You know, you're going to come in contact with horrible people, difficult situations, yeah. Um, yeah. right? Your Your castle will collapse in those moments if you don't have it built on a strong foundation. Mm. And so back to performance, you know, you asked me a little bit ago, like, what does it take to be a high performer? I, I think you
0: yeah. think I may high have. Achiever.
1: Yeah, yeah. High achiever. You have to have a strong foundation. Mm. And that foundation really comes from having a, you can call it a negativity practice or a fear practice you know, beneath all negativity, you're going to find fear. Like beneath shame, guilt, unworthiness, you're going to find fear. Beneath anger, you'll find fear. Um, like fear is kind of the primary ingredient in all perceived negativity. Like until you have an honest, healthy relationship with that part of life, then the castle that you build on top of that cracked foundation isn't going to do very well. Mm. So love joy gratitude practice step B. Step A is you got to go back, especially if you have emotional problems or if you have underperforming problems or you just don't feel like your life is going the way that you'd like it to. This is the most important work you will ever do, personal work, is to go and have a experience with those 5,000 children that you typically don't want to have anything to do with. Like Give them some consideration, some love, some nourishment. Mm. You know, we have this belief that life is supposed to be all about happy and joy and um, that it's supposed to be easy.
0: Kumbaya, yeah.
1: That's not life. (laughs) It's not realistic. You know, you're happy sometimes, you're sad sometimes. If you refuse or you deny the negative, it's rightful place in your life, you are going to be at war with life. You're going to be at war with yourself. You're going to be, I mean, if you're at war with fear, if you try to conquer and overcome fear, you're at war with yourself at your core. And it's an unwinnable war. And you will spend your whole life fighting it. And it mm. won't work. You know, you need to make friends with all that life has to offer. And how you do that is, you know, we've got to stop talking about the negative as being something that mm. is here to help us. And, you know, let me give you a, a story that kind of brings us all home. You know, what is flow? Flow is, when we think of flow, we think of water. And uh, I think of a hose, like I'm a hose and I have (laughs) water running through me. And these are 10,000 traditional number in Zen droplets of water. And here comes joy, here comes happiness here comes sadness, here comes frustration, here comes anger, here comes fear, here comes anger again. Like these are all different states of being that are a natural part of a human experience. And so long as I'm in flow with all of them, they come into, through, and out of my life in usually between 10 and 90 seconds, proven by science, neuroscience too. So 10 to 90 seconds, they're gone. And these 10,000 states of being become your 10,000 motivators mm. like my fear and anger did these 10,000 states are your 10,000 sources of wisdom sources of intuition instinct energy resources sources of creativity every single one of them both the positive and the negative we're in flow with them all we see great artists that are in flow with the negative and they make beautiful art fury very yeah, yeah. piercing art so um that's flow Now, if you see something that you don't like and you try to get rid of it, you kick the hose. And then that undealt with negative thing just starts recirculating. So here's the example. I said I did some things right and I did some things wrong during my ski career. So I um, was a professional big mountain extreme skier. Like that was what I was most known for. I quit mogul skiing very quickly and did this instead. And next thing you know, mostly I was just filming films. They started these competitions for big mountain free skiing, they call them. And, uh, and I was expected to enter the first one and expected to win it because I was the best, right? I did not want to enter this thing. I didn't want to be in the gate. There was one girl. If I didn't beat her, it would be humiliating. Um, I kept saying no. And finally, they said they, they paid me to come in and compete in this thing. I'm like, okay, this is embarrassing. If I don't take this, you know, I'm going to feel like a, an idiot. So I went and competed in this thing that I didn't want to do. And I was really, really nervous. And I played it really, really safe. And I was blocking out my fear, ignoring my fear. And it was a three-day competition. And each day, it was the best of two runs. And you would progress. So by mm. the third day, I'm in the fi- finals. And my first run, I wasn't winning. I had played it really safe. I was blocking out my fear. I was ignoring my fear. And I had about two hours to think about it before my second run. And I was embarrassed. I was terrified. I was mm. angry at myself. I had full-on imposter syndrome going on. Like, oh, my gosh, I'm about to be found out as a fraud. I'm not really the best. Um, I mean, I was, I was in some really negative States like I was, you know, these were all the things that were coming through my hose. These droplets of water were all perceived negative, but I shifted and I became intimate with all of them. Did I know this was happening? No, but each droplet of water just was burning hot and fiery, like anger, you know. Mm. Like if you are intimate with your anger, it just shows up as passion, it doesn't show up as anger. You know, my frustration made me come alive like I'm so frustrated. I need to do something about this. My fear of of failure was just so sharp, you know, and it, it made me bring my A game so as not to fail. I wasn't in resistance to any of these things. And drop by drop I became a mighty river. I was in flow with them all. And by the time I got into the gate two hours later, I was on fire. And it was a, a hard packed day. I'm on skinny skis. I went and jumped a 70 foot cliff. This is in 1991 on skinny skis and uh, stuck the landing. Not only one for the women, but one uh, took fourth overall for the men out of, uh, I want to say about 120 men. And these are the best in the world, you know, and um, and the second place woman took 73rd or something like that. So all of these perceived negative emotions, experiences wind up becoming my resources for Mm. an amazing performance because I was in flow with all of them. And so that's what flow is. It's not the denial of the negative, it's the inclusion. And, um, and I, you know, we, these are untapped resources, these children in the basement, you know, they're, In the words of the Beastie Boys, darkness is not the opposite of light. It's the absence of light. Like, these voices are perceived as dark, as being bad energy, Hmm. uh, low vibration energy. That's actually not true. Because if you shine the light of consciousness on them and take them out of the basement and give them the respect and consideration they deserve, learn how to be intimate with them, learn how to be in flow with them, they're not dark voices at all. They're actually Uh, assets and allies here to make us be magnificent Hmm.
0: and I think also uh, um, all those emotions are just part of the human experience because um, happiness doesn't exist without misery and uh, all those things uh, can't exist without each other
1: I have a a woman who is hiring me to uh, be a better skier she's uh, a career skier and and uh and she says that she wants to ski from a place of happiness and joy I said well that's that's not going to make you a better skier (laughs) 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 you know and and love take love like there's a wisdom and a delusion to every single I call them voices like love you, it's clear to see the wisdom. You can see the wisdom, mm. but what's the delusion? Love is blind. Love is stupid. If we ski mm. from a place of love, you know, next thing you know, we're like spacing out and not paying attention, and and mm. or like if you're a if you're a gymnast and you're about to do your performance on the balance beam in the Olympics and you're going out there from a place of love, if you fall off the balance beam, do you care?
2: <laughs> uh, right? Yeah. No,
1: that's not what's going to make for a fierce performance, that's not what she wants. Happiness is the same. Happiness has its place. You mm-hmm. know. Um, it's not necessarily, like I've asked probably a thousand people now, and I'll ask you. Yeah, sure. If you have to choose between one or the other, you can always p- only pick one, would mm-hmm. you rather feel happy or would you rather feel alive?
0: That's a tricky question I guess. But it is? <laughs> my gut uh, intuition would say uh, I would choose happy, but um, it's probably the wrong answer here, right? <laughs> oh, that's quite a
1: wrong answer. Okay. I mean there's a place for happy, but if you were happy all the time, what really would you accomplish?
0: Mm, yeah, probably nothing, right? <laughs>
1: well, I mean not that everybody wants to accomplish things, right? Like
0: but I, but I know what you're you're trying to say. Fear is like a very, very strong motivator, and um,
1: yeah, right, right. And aliveness includes happiness, but isn't limited by it. Mm. These ten thousand voices are the ten thousand sources of aliveness. Mm. Frustration made me feel alive. Anger made me feel alive. Um, you know, can we turn towards like if somebody has feelings of, of uh, like? like ha- struggles with self-worth yeah instead of trying to get rid of it can you actually spend some quality time being curious about it like see it as a child and and giving it some love like spending some time just loving your self-worth like finding the the issues with self-worth like in your body is it in your chest is it in your throat um you know is it in your stomach mm. you know give it give that spot some love and ask why is it why is it yelling so loud? Why is it uh, having so much to say? what What have I been ignoring? What's your wisdom? You know, and it might say, well, you've gotta deal with your shit from childhood. like you've gotta you've got to um, look into you've got to have that difficult conversation with your mm. husband, your wife that you've been putting off. like it's there's always a message for you there if you're willing to listen to it. yeah. Know? Instead of trying to get rid of it, like tap into it, like, what is it here to
2: teach mm. you? It's like
1: free therapy,
2: you know? <laughs> you don't and, need
1: to talk to a therapist, just find the discomfort <laughs> in your body and ask it a couple questions and see what the answers are.
0: Yeah, <laughs> and and to be honest, uh, really, really think about it. Um, if you want to be more happy, or if you're seeking to be more happy, this in it uh, in it itself is just a negative experience. Like if you want to be happy, you are telling yourself like you're unhappy, so it isn't like a pleasant experience in it itself. So um, I think so, um, that definitely your approach, like um, accepting it, is one million times better than uh, just denying it and trying to get rid of it with all those different vehicles like meditation and Mm -hmm. all those things which are basically just vehicles of denying it so uh yeah
1: so accepting it if you remember is only level two
0: Mm.
1: resistance to it and resistance comes in many forms like everybody has their way of resisting the negative, um, they make Like them you've
0: s- mentioned, some some smoke pot.
1: Yep. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and and people who stop smoking pot uh, say that they start to feel really, really angry when they don't smoke. Mm-hmm. So then yeah. that tells me that they smoke pot to not deal with their anger. You know, it's a, they self-medicate. You know, the, the payoff is they don't have to deal with their anger. Anger goes in the basement. It's medicated away. But
0: the
1: the consequence of that is you turn yourself into kind of a dope, you know, it's called dope for a reason, right? (laughs) What do you have to give up in order to gain freedom from anger? You know, can you just (laughs) actually turn towards your anger in an honest way rather than smoke pot for 50 years? Mm. It's a lot easier to turn towards your anger in an honest way. Um, So, so level one is resistance and resistance. I mean, smoke pot, pills, alcohol, right? Food mm. is a way to not have to deal with your negative emotions. Yeah, video
0: uh, games. Uh, video games. Going out at night. Shopping. Yeah. Being
1: mm. really busy at work. <laughs> you know, making yourself so busy. Like people that are really, really busy and the second they slow down, they, they like notice that, oh my gosh, I feel really awful. Like that's a sign that they're resisting their emotions. Becoming really heady. People that are in their heads all the time, you know why they're doing that? So that, well, not only because our school system kind of supports that, you know, but by being in your head all the time, you don't have to deal with the feelings in your body. Mm. So that's another way to not have to deal with your negative emotions as being in your head all the time. But then, of course, it backfires because then these negative emotions will come to the place where they can get your attention, which is your mind, and they'll hijack your mind. So if you're in your head all the time and it's a super negative experience that's because you're not in your body and you're not dealing with your emotions honestly and that's what the result is. So so level 1 is resistance. Resistance comes in many forms. Um, train your brain like you know if you're dealing if you're doing that to deal with emotional issues you're dealing with them intellectually. We need to learn mm-hmm. how to deal with our emotions emotionally, which is what I'm getting towards. So level 1 resistance. Level 2 acceptance step in the right direction, but why stop there? You know, like, uh, okay, fear. We're about to give a speech. I could resist you or I could accept you. And it's like, okay, there's nothing I can do about you. You're going to be here. Of course, you're going to be here. You're not normal and natural part of the experience. It is what it is, whatever, but it's still not respectful to fear. Hmm. You know, it is what it is, is not respectful to fear. Um, third level, embracing fear. Now you're getting somewhere. Embracing is dealing with your emotion emotionally, like you're dealing with it physically, where you're finding the feeling in your body, and you're giving it some love. Mm. Like we can do it right now. Like close your eyes. And if you're listening on this podcast and you're driving, please do not close your eyes. But (laughs) do this when you're not driving. So close your eyes. And find any kind of feeling of discomfort in your body. And it could feel emotional. It could also feel physical. Like if you have an old broken leg that still bothers you. You know, notice that there's an emotional component to it. And notice where it is. And maybe point to the part in your body where it is. And you may find more than one. Certainly I can find several. Like right now, the emotional discomfort I feel is in my head. And in my chest and in my throat, where do you feel it, Hardy?
0: Uh, in my back. <laughs>
1: yeah. Okay. And people say in your back, your lower back, like that's usually yeah. undealt with anger. If it's your neck, it's undealt with fear. Like just notice that if you have pain in your spine, that there's an emotional component. And that may be where you're undealt with emotions, negative emotions are stored. That's the basement. The basement is your body. That's where you've pushed them down and that's where they live now. Yeah. And uh, right. So, so just have an honest relationship. Notice where you feel it. Mm. And you don't even need to necessarily name it. It's just whatever it is. Can you now spend some quality time just feeling it? And this is not about focusing on it with your mind. Mm. Um, that's one experience. Like, just focus on it right now with your mind. And then now think about the feeling with your mind. That's another experience. Mm. And now, uh, let's see, how do we want to progress here? Now um, be curious about it. And now embrace it.
2: Mm.
1: So you're moving out of your head and it's now it's a physical experience. And now can you give it some love? And then can you, and it's probably easier with your eyes closed, and then can you be intimate with the experience, with the discomfort? So notice that you've moved from your head into your body. Mm. And like I have a cat, focusing on the cat is one experience, thinking about the cat is another experience, Um, touching the cat, petting the cat, loving the cat, embracing the cat, being intimate with the cat. Like... The second you shift out of your head and into your body, it's a thought-free experience. It's a deeper experience. It's a richer experience. That's what these emotions want, Mm. comfort wants. It wants to have it be a physical experience. And that's what a fear practice or a negativity practice looks like. That's what you need to do to build your foundation so that your castle has a chance to weather any storm
0: and i think um but you need to be honest with yourself for everybody who is listening to this right now because um if you are just trying to force it and you're trying to force the whole uh, accepting and embracing thing you will fail in my opinion for instance if somebody wants to uh forces themselves to go to the gym to change their diet they might do it for one week two weeks four weeks but eventually they will quit but somebody who really wants to change their lifestyle their habits and so on and so forth they will stick to it long term and um, i think if you are trying to force those things they will fail but um if you really want to or if you really embracing it and uh, accepting it um it will work probably
1: it, it does work i've never seen yeah. it not work when i work with clients one of two things happen either i get them to see that they're going to commit to their habitual patterns hmm. because there's a payoff for them um you know we unpacked it
0: for us because uh I think there's some gold there.
1: <laughs> but now they're consciously choosing to say, stay stuck. And mm-hmm. I would say a third of my work is just about getting people to recognize the payoff that they get for their current method of dealing with the negative part of life. Um, you know, otherwise we wouldn't do this. And and mm-hmm. especially if we're invested, let's say somebody has invested 20 years, to locking 30 years, 50 years into locking fear in the basement, ignoring fear, whatever it is, and they've become really good at it. You know, they mm. don't want to give up that investment. And, you know, the, it's not a big enough problem that they're willing to do something about it. Like they've managed to just put fear ten feet below the basement. People would rather take a pill and just <laughs> Lock their fear in case their fear in concrete ten feet below the basement, you know. <laughs> and
0: and install uh, oh, oh, a meditation app. <laughs> Just meditation, kidding, right?
1: <laughs> right? It's, it works well enough to get me through this moment. Gets me through a day. It's not a big enough problem. I have other stuff to do, right? Um, yeah. So, you know, unless people are in crisis, I find yeah. that they won't. So powerful. So negative,
0: powerful.
1: Right. And I, so I actually powerful. have a five-page list of payoffs that we get for mm-hmm. not dealing with our emotions in an honest way. Yeah, and yeah. some of yeah. them, like even somebody that's depressed, their depression becomes their identity. And they wouldn't even know who they were without it. Or somebody who has crippling anxiety, um, they don't have to take responsibility for their lives. Or maybe a loved one pays their rent. And if they were to get rid of that problem, then they would have to pay their own rent, you know, or maybe you get a lot of attention because of uh, whatever kind of emotional issue you have. And um, so there's also payoffs, and uh, there's just a lot of reasons not to have a fair mm. practice. But the people who really are committed to being the very, very best people they can be will. that's how it went you know and and there's people like that so the people that i have as clients um i have three avatars people who are in absolute crisis they're in a chasm and they're desperate they're willing to they know that what they've done hasn't been working um the definition of insanity is trying the same thing over and over again expecting different results they realize they're going insane with this it's not going to work if, in, and to be honest if all the things that were out there worked then um we'd be feeling a lot less anxiety but we're only getting worse and worse and if we keep up this you know meditation app path
0: mm-hmm. like automatic- I, I'm probably getting <laughs> hate man after this episode <laughs>
1: <laughs> Now you know, meditation app people if you're listening or <laughs> right just
0: please don't please send us hate med-
1: me. I will make a meditation app that is not about spiritual bypassing. I will help you. Just give me a call. I mean, I'm new on the scene. I've only been doing this for three years. I've been a mindset sports coach, and then my book came out. So just give me a call. This is new. This is fresh. And it, let me tell you, it works. So, um, no, I lost my train of thought. What was he saying? Three three something. Um,
0: three things. Uh, you have three clients. Three level of clients.
1: Three client. clients. Thank you. Thank you. Three avatars. So people that are in crisis. The second are people that are really, really high functioning, that are doing great things with their life, but they just don't feel good, Mm. you know, and they are sick of it. Or I work with people who are um, doing amazing things with with their life. They don't have emotional issues and they just want to go to the next level. They want to tap into the five or 10% that is missing that can be found by having a more intimate relationship with all their 10,000 voices. So Um, right now the middle avatar is the one that we're talking about where people who are really high functioning, um, but they just feel like crap, you know, or they're not getting along with their wives. Um, like they're, they're fearless at work and then they come home and then they deal with their emotions when they're at home. Or, um, I see a lot of people who are fearless in one area of your life, like a sport, but then, um, I see this with ski racers a lot. They're fearless in ski racing but then they have anxiety disorders and they have to take sleep meds and they, they become really tense and rigid and stoic to block out their fear. And so they start to break because it's a really violent sport. You need to be more slinky. Like you can't be rigid after about 10 years. it just starts to, you start to break. Um, and they, they, uh, are pickled in anxiety in some other area of their life in order mm. to be fearless at work or at, in their sport. Like Those are the people that are high, high accomplished, but they're just after 10 years, shit has gone south and they need help. And this looks like a more reasonable option than um, continuing the path of spiritual bypassing.
0: Hmm. Yeah, and I think it's so important to realize that. Um, for instance, I was just thinking about, and this might be a stupid example, but um, people who are in a toxic relationship and they are like very, very unhappy in their relationship, they tend to ask their friends something along the lines like, oh, I have this uh, horrible partner and I'm so unhappy and I don't know how to break up with them. And I think it's such a disingenuous question because if you really want to break up with somebody, you just break up with them. Like, you don't have to ask anybody how to break up with them. And um, like you said, they're getting something out of the relationship. Like, I'm 100% sure that they're getting something out of it. Because if they wouldn't, they would just go without hesitation.
1: Being a fear and anxiety specialist, I love that you brought this up. Because this is a great example of how uh, having a fear practice can help uh, guide you and, and help you tap into intuition and wisdom. Mm. So there's fear if you stay and there's fear if you go. And like people True. look at women who are in an abusive relationship and they say, well, she won't leave because she's afraid to leave. Well, she's also afraid to stay, but her fear of leaving is greater than her fear of staying. Mm. And so if you're and in, and, and she doesn't know what to do because if she doesn't have a healthy relationship with her fear, then the fear is not there to help guide her. Like if you have a fear practice, you have an intuition practice. Like you can tap into your intuition. And so like somebody that was not sure if they wanted to stay or go, I would say, well, on a scale of 1 to 10, how afraid are you of leaving this relationship and all that it implies? And they give me a number. You know, let's say it's a 10. I'm afraid of leaving this relationship to a level 10. I still think there's something here. I don't want to give that up, blah, blah, blah how afraid are you of, of uh, so, so that, how afraid are you leaving? How afraid, are afraid of you are, sorry, how afraid of, how afraid are you of staying? And they say mm. it's a level five, and all that applies. Like, oh my gosh, I can see myself still three years later, still stuck in the same place, yeah. only it's worse now. I'm embarrassed. <laughs> my friends all think that I'm an idiot. Like, you know, but that's the lesser fear. So whatever the bigger fear is wins. And that's how you can make smart, intuitive decisions. Mm. And at some point it may shift. You may may become more afraid of staying than of leaving. And that's when you know it's time to leave. Mm. And it, it, it can vary every day. But if you're paying attention to your fear and if you're asking it questions, you know, at some point you'll be able to notice that, oh, it's time to go.
0: And um, I, I have to add, I don't think it's easy or hard to break up with somebody because um, I think it's even hard if you hate them. So, <laughs> but if you really want to break up with somebody, I think you will just uh, say see ya. But um, I think it can still be emotionally hard. So uh, sure, those things um, really impact people.
1: You know, life is emotionally hard. Just <laughs> just on! It's
2: like, I'm
0: oh glad my that. You said that.
1: <laughs> I saw a quote the other day. Life is really expensive, and I'm not even really having a very good time.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's a good one. I love
1: that quote.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a good one.
1: Life is freaking difficult. And it, when uh, we think that it's not supposed to be difficult, that's when we get in trouble. Mm. If you do think it is supposed to be difficult you know, and scary. And, you know, one of the best things that we can do that just absolutely changes lives is when we have a negative emotion or when we have a negative feeling is to just acknowledge that it's normal and natural to feel this way. It's Mm -hmm. not a sign of personal weakness to be afraid. It's not a character flaw to be unhappy. Mm -hmm. And if you are unhappy on a regular basis, it's become excessive. That's because you've been, you know, you've kinked the hose and, and you're not dealing with something, learn how to deal with it. And then you'll get in flow again. And once you're in flow, it's like, I'm happy. Sometimes I'm sad. Sometimes I'm in gratitude. Sometimes other times I'm just total asshole. You know, it's like, like I, I always laugh when people say, Oh gosh, that guy is such a jerk. I'm like, well, you know, you've met him. Like if you don't know, I'm like, okay, he was a jerk in that moment that you met him. But the next moment, he could be like the greatest dad that ever lived. It's like we are up to 10,000 things a day, you know? And we pigeonhole people and we pigeonhole ourselves. It's like, can we learn how to be in flow with it all? And, you know, I feel like there's two possible ways to approach this horrible and awesome condition of being a human effing being. (laughs) And the first way is to fight the nature of life, you hmm. know, and try to steer it and try to control it. Um, whatever you try to control winds up controlling you. We, we can't control anything, though. It's really freaking hard. That's to control so
0: profound. So profound.
1: You know, make it a great day is like the worst slogan ever. Let it go is like the worst advice you'll ever get. Um, because it's... <laughs> It sets you up to live under an impossible ideal. I actually had some clients. They had twins, twin kids. Mm. And one of them had a crippling fear and the other had an anxiety disorder. They were only 10 years old. Crazy. And I was hired to help them. I don't normally work with kids, but um, I thought, well, they talk. So young. And I realized the mom was saying, make it a great day every day to them. And I'm like, you gotta stop saying that because then when a kid isn't having a great day, it shames them. It makes them feel like there's something wrong with them, or or if it really was a choice. I mean, we have 50 thoughts per minute.
0: 50 Time. per minute. This is uh,
1: 50 thoughts per minute. It's <laughs> crazy.
0: That.
1: Yeah. If, if, if you think about that, that's 51 thoughts in this minute. So. <laughs> 50 <thoughts a> minute. <laughs> times 60 times 24 times, I mean, how many thoughts is that in a week? And to suggest that we can control our thoughts mm-hmm. is wildly unrealistic. We I mean, can control one or two or, you know, and so we think, haha, but make it a great day suggests that you have control over how your day goes, or you have control over your thoughts, or you have control over your emotions, your moods, like, you know, you can choose to make mm-hmm. it a great day you know, and if you don't, that's a character weakness. It's a sign of personal weakness. Um, And then next thing you know, these kids are feeling like there's something wrong with them because if they have a bad day, then it's their fault. And next thing you know, they're not dealing with their fear and they're not dealing with their anger because that's not welcome in the family. And then it turns out the mom was uh, um, on antidepressants. And uh, I mean, it, it just, did they take my advice? No, they didn't.
0: Yeah, and um, I was just thinking about that all those things that um, that, that you've said are so true because, uh, yeah, people are really, it's so crazy to me that so, so many people have this mindset of thinking that they can control their thoughts and they need to be happy all the time, and it's just so, because for instance, on social media, you're seeing all those people like always smiling, me included. But, um, and everyone is portraying the certain image on social media, but it isn't real. For instance, I was just thinking about that um, through the podcast, I've known, get to know like very, very famous people. And one of them is uh, Kane Zumabad, and he's like a fitness influencer and thousands of followers. And, um, He is suffering from depression, anxiety, suicidal thoughts, and all that. And if you don't know him, you would never, never, never think that he is suffering from all those things. He's really open about it on social media, but he's looking like a Greek god, has this perfect physique, and... But but he's like really suffering from depression and all those things. And I know very wealthy people and very, very successful people. And they are also suffering from depression and all those different things. And I think it's just a big misconception that a lot of people have that all those people that are smiling on social media and ha- have a lot of money and have a lot of friends and they are living the perfect lives that they are all happy all the time. like. I'm yeah. always smiling on social media, but I'm not happy all the time. I can say that. So. <laughs>
1: well, yeah. Bef- uh, tell him to call me, by the way. These are the problems that I help people solve. Totally out <laughs> of the box, uh, what I teach. Um, and before we slip down the rabbit hole of I'm glad that, we're including ourselves in this and I'll, yeah. I'll raise my hand too. And like, I, <laughs> I, I went on the, I went on the Megyn Kelly show before it was canceled and, mm. um, and I, I posted on social media four different dresses and had people vote on which dress uh, I should wear. And I was having the worst day and I had my husband <laughs> take the pictures. And if you go to my website not my website, my, on Facebook, um i'm in the photos with the four photos with the four photos of me in the dress and i'm like you know looking morose <laughs> i mean i look miserable and I, to this day i look at those photos and I'm like oh, uh, God. i can't believe yeah,
0: yeah. Right.
1: but, but we're still
0: putting this stuff out there yeah. <laughs> yeah
1: it's because of what i teach i'm like i'm not willing to put a smile on my face unless i'm really feeling it but mm. it's embarrassing you know and and thank God nobody commented on how miserable I looked, but anyway, I just, so, okay. And I also don't want to go down the rabbit hole of like talking about them and suggesting that we're any different. Like I, I Mm. actually do smile when I'm not feeling it. Um, And I do. (laughs) Me too. Yeah. When I'm not, you Mm -hmm. know? Um, And so back to what I was saying, there's, two possible let's let's call let's go big you want to go big
0: yeah right. sure let's go really big <laughs>
1: Instead of two possible ways to live your life let's go two ways to find meaning and purpose in your life or or basically the meaning of life two possible meanings in life right the first is where we try to come and gain control um and conquer hmm. negativity and find happiness and peace and love and joy and nurture these children and and you know very noble efforts warrior like people that are having these love joy and gratitude practices like mm. bravo like that is important difficult
2: great
0: intention
1: right very intentional mindfulness all of that like you know <laughs> that's one meaning of life like my meaning yeah. of life is to find a way to be happy to overcome this cancer, to overcome my shitty childhood, too. like there is meaning and purpose in that. Mm -hmm. And that's a noble life.
0: Totally agreed. Yeah.
1: What I teach and what I propose, which I have found to be a lot easier and more effective Mm. is where you just devote your life and find a meaning and purpose in merging with your life, you know, becoming intimate with all your many moods. Becoming intimate with your fear and your anger and your despair. Um, Having a healthy flowing relationship with the good and the bad. Like I keep saying, I'm happy sometimes, I'm sad sometimes. Like, can you actually find the beauty in your sadness? You know, sadness is actually here to break open our hearts for love and compassion for ourselves and other people. Can you... Merge with your anger so that the anger helps you right a wrong um, and helps you find the confidence to take on some system that doesn't seem quite right. Like without anger, we'd still have slavery. You know, without anger, I don't think we'd have a chance of turning around climate change. You know, a lot of these kids that are giving these speeches, like at the UN and stuff, they're angry. You know, that's an important Mm. for change. So, can you look at all these five thousand children and merge with them and and find the beauty in them too, and what they're here to offer you? and so that's the second so way to find meaning and purpose in your life. you know the absolute either controlling resisting you know put priority on these or the opposite, which is see the wisdom that all that life has to offer and find a way to have a practice so that you can merge with it all. Hmm.
0: And I'm so glad that you are talking about all those things because I think nowadays uh, in society is a loudspeaker of, um, yeah, everything is great and you need to love everybody and it's all, uh, all everything is so, so positive and nobody is talking about all those negative emotions. And I think it's really important, like you said, that people um, don't try to... Get rid of them and don't try to control them and all those different things. So,
1: and people are saying our true nature is love. That's that's partially true. Our true nature <laughs> is also fear.
0: Mm.
1: You know, our true and, and that's kind of I weird.
0: can vote for that. <laughs> yeah, that's
1: kind of beautiful. Like we're here and and taking this back into my sports career and taking this back into like high performance and all of that. You know, I mentioned that fear is here to help you bring your A game to everything you do. But here's what I also did regarding fear during my ski career. Now, Mm -hmm. I chose a sport that was very dangerous. You know, I would say that my peers and I, you know, 50% of the time, like you look at those videos of people doing extraordinary things on skis, the person that you're looking at has a 50% chance of being really badly injured that season.
0: 50%? It's so high. Exactly.
1: I mean, I don't know the statistics, but I lived the, that life for 15 years. Yes, it's that bad. But these athletes hide their injuries from their sponsors, from you know, I kept my mouth shut with all my injuries. And and these are really bad injuries and people are getting paralyzed and um and there's a lot of deaths in big mountain extreme skiing. Uh I personally, I mean I during my ski career, I dated five men that are now dead from skiing. And I didn't date that life. Yeah, I've seen t- a couple people die. I've seen people get crippled for life and never ski again. I mean, I I've didn't seen know that dozens. This so of, I've had I had sixteen near death experiences. Like big mountain extreme skiing is one of the more dangerous sports. I think it's second only to uh, eight thousand meter peak climbing in the Himalayas in terms of deaths per t- participant. And this is professional big mountain is mm. risking, in, and probably second only to freestyle motocross in terms of injuries it is i right. in my opinion the most yeah. dangerous sport there is in terms of deaths and injuries um the reason why i did it besides mm. the insecurities and demons that i talked about is because they're really scary like you look at these athletes doing these super dangerous things that are really intense they're not fearless What they're doing is they're having a radical love affair with their fear. Mm. Like the scarier it is, is, the more alive they feel. Fear and excitement neurochemically are exactly the same thing. And this is a really important point. So pay attention. That awful feeling we associate with fear actually isn't fear. That awful feeling is our resistance to the fear. It's the feeling of, I don't want to feel this.
2: Like I saw a girl
1: walking up a ladder to go on a trapeze, right? And she's like, she's feeling fear. And, uh, well, let me give you two examples. One woman walks up the ladder and she's feeling fear, flying trapeze, very scary, but she's merging with it. She's, she wants to have a scary experience that day. She's in the mood for it. You know, here's your comfort zone. I started going down there and no fear, you know? but there's no aliveness in here. You step out of your comfort zone where there exists fear, right? All of a sudden you feel alive, you feel excitement. If you merge with the fear, if you resist the fear, you just want to go back to your comfort zone. So it's that resistance to the fear that is the problem. So the, the one woman climbs up, she goes off the flying trapeze, she merges with her fear and it's like the best day she's had in years, mm-hmm. you know? And, and it was so fun. You know, why is it fun? Because of the fear.
2: The woman who goes
1: up the ladder and starts to feel that, you know, uncomfortable sensation. And she's like, what's wrong with me? Why am I feeling this? Nobody else feels this but me. She fear shames herself. I don't want to feel this. I I can't do this until I get rid of this feeling. It's that resistance Mm -hmm. to the fear that's the awful feeling. And it's the resistance that makes her go back down and get back into her comfort zone. The fear doesn't make her pull up on the stick. The fear actually is is not the problem. It's her resistance to the fear that makes her pull up on the stick.
0: And like, I think and I think, if you are resisting it, it even gets stronger. For instance, if I oh, say, yeah. uh, don't think about a pink elephant, the first thing you are thinking about is a pink elephant. And if you try to get rid of it, like all the time, um, I don't think it does you any good. So,
1: Right. Well, take fear of failure, for example.
0: Hmm. I
1: talk about how it motivates me. Well, why does it hold some other people back? It's actually not the fear of failure that's holding people back. It's the resistance to the fear that's Mm. holding people back. It's I don't want to feel fear, so I'm not going to act on my business (laughs) idea. It's the resistance. Like fear gets a bad rap. Fear doesn't hold people back from doing anything. It's our unwillingness to feel fear that holds us back.
0: Mm.
1: So back to my ski career, I actually was addicted to fear.
0: Addicted to fear. You have to unpack that for us (laughs) Yeah.
1: Well, a lot of people look at extreme sports athletes in really dangerous sports and think, oh, well, they have a death wish, which is absurd. It's the radical opposite. We have a life wish. The more Mm. intense the situation, the more alive we feel because of the fear. Mm. And so I loved skiing, but really what I realized I loved more was the place that it took me. It took me into those Mm -hmm. heightened states of zone and flow. I said at the beginning of this podcast that if you're having an intimate relationship with fear, flow comes for free. Well, these sports, these extreme sports are notorious for taking people into the zone. Why is that? Because of the fear. Because of the fear, these sports are really scary. And these athletes that are doing them love feeling fear. Do they know that that's what's going on? Probably not. I've just actually interviewed uh, 16 different professional extreme sports athletes, including Alex Hunold who free soloed El Cap, and Laird Hamilton, arguably the best big wave surfer in the world. And we all come to the same conclusion. We are having an intimate relationship with our fear. And it's taking us into those heightened states of flow and zone, and that's, I mean, I didn't love, I loved skiing, but I love the heightened states far more. That's Mm. what I was doing out there Mm -hmm. in those mountains, is I was having a love affair with fear, and my book, my book is The Art of Fear. It, Mm -hmm. It teaches people the first half of the book teaches people, uh, like why you have if you have an anxiety problem or other emotional problem, exactly why you have it. It breaks it down in really crystal clear terms. And then the second half of the book outlines what to do instead. The original title of my book, because about 10% of the book is my own personal story and how I came to these conclusions,
2: yeah.
1: um, was My Love Affair with Fear. And that's HarperCollins is my publisher. That was the working title for two years, My Love Affair with Fear. And that's what we're doing out there. We're having a Laird Hamilton, Alex Hunold, love affair with fear.
0: <laughs> I love this. So, uh, so,
1: so the question to the audience is: Can yeah. you have a love affair with fear? And if you do, just notice that you'll step out of your comfort zone more and more often. Be willing to feel fear. You connect the new dots. That's your new comfort zone. This is what Alex Hunold did to the free solo El Cap. Step out again, right? Mm. Connect the new dots. Like, if you have a love affair with fear, this is how you become amazing at something.
0: So, uh, how does uh, the Zen teachings fit into all that? Because, um, yeah, you have said you've studied Zen for 15 years. So, uh, yeah.
1: Yeah, very, very intently, as a matter of fact. So, um, how it fit into all this is, uh, quickly, at the end of my ski career, I was burnt out and started having more and more injuries. Cause I became like that really rigid stoic person. Cause I had that paradox going on where I both resisted fear and, and loved it at the same time. And, uh, the part of me that resisted it, I became really rigid, stoic, arrogant, masculine. Mm. And, and I started to break cause I can't, you can't be that rigid and jump off cliffs. You you break. It's like throwing a tin can against the cement wall versus a slinky like it dents it breaks and I was burnt out I thought I was burnt out on the skiing but I was burnt out on uh, the war I had going with fear mm. and uh, it was just depleting all my resources I was just exhausted my adrenals were shot and um, I wanted to figure out what I had learned from my ski career besides gratification of my massive ego <laughs> hedonism radical self-expression of my demons and insecurities like what had I learned it didn't feel like anything and so I started these mindset only ski camps I still do them at Alta Utah this year and uh come to one if you ski they're great (laughs) and uh it's mindset only and I I take people on a process of getting them into flow by choice rather than by chance so I, I started these camps because they were the camp I wanted to attend. I wanted to figure out what I had learned in 15 years as a professional athlete. And 12 years of that, I was the best in the world, which is a really, really long time to be the best in the world at something. And, yeah. um, you know, to not have learned anything from that was bizarre. And uh, so then I started studying a Zen approach to life. And quickly I learned what the problems I was having had How been did you like. study
0: it? Uh,
1: I. My teacher was Genpo Roshi, and uh, he used a form of voice dialogue, which is what I use with my clients. I facilitate them. Like, I, what I'm doing with you right now, I don't do with mm. clients. I don't lecture. Um, I facilitate people into having a conversation with their children in the basement, you know, mm. just to see what kind of relationship is there that's underneath uh, the surface, like, that you're not aware of without a good facilitator. So I help I help people access their own of uh, advice I don't mm-hmm.
2: give
1: it I help people tap into whatever stuck place may be under underneath their relative reality get them unstuck from that place and then take them into heightened states of flow and zone um, by choice rather than by chance mm. so anyway um so I started studying with Genpo Roshi and he is a exceptional teacher and I wasn't so much interested in zazen like meditation I wasn't interested in like the robes and the bowing. I was just interested in Americanizing the Zen and and making it practical. Like how can we take these thousands of years old philosophy of, you know, in my version being in flow with your 10,000 voices and being one with it all and have it be useful to help people who are struggling with emotional issues and those Mm -hmm. emotional issues and people who are struggling with performance um, get unstuck from whatever place they're in and and break free from that stuck place and and start to perform better um so very quickly I started working with clients and so as I continue to study and so all these concepts that I've come up with bottom line are from at this point 33 years of real world practical experience I didn't learn about this stuff in college I'm not repeating information that I've heard from other people um you know to help people with their anxiety or other emotional issues, et cetera. Um, This is all just stuff that I've put together on my own from my experience as an athlete, from studying Zen, and then from working with about 10,000 clients now, just to uh, explore what exactly helps people and what doesn't. That's landed me here on your podcast. (laughs) (laughs) That's my story.
0: And um, what were the sayings that most impacted you? From the Zen teachings.
1: When my teacher first asked me. It's voice dialogue. So you may not know what this means. But he said allow me please to speak to the voice of fear.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Which is what I facilitate with my clients. And I shifted and shifted. And again I don't expect you to understand what this means. But it was the most important question of my life. Because. I shifted and shifted. And I couldn't find my fear. I didn't think I had any fear. I was called fearless by the media. I believed my hype. I thought I was fearless. Um, and uh, I couldn't find it. And I, I raised my hand. I said, I, I sure did not have any fear. And I said it with great confidence, too. Hmm. And he said, I thought that about you. And then he started facilitating me. And in 10 minutes' time, working with him, I had more of an understanding of why I was the way I was, why I acted the way I acted, what I had learned from my ski career that was ripe for the picking in 10 minutes with him than I had 15 years as a professional athlete. And while he continued to facilitate, because I hired him for my ski camp, while he continued to facilitate me and the rest of the group, I'm crying. I'm like, totally blown away by what I'm learning. And I'm looking around the room and everybody in the room is having the same experience as me. They're all just having their minds blown. And so it was that question. I think it's, it's probably the most important conversation you can have. Uh, the conversation that you have with your own fear, because it's a conversation that you have with yourself at your very core. I actually consider having a healthy relationship with fear, the most important relationship of your life. For those reasons, it's a relationship you have with yourself at your core. It's a relationship that you have with life at its core. You know, from the first single cell amoeba, you know, if there was a scientist around to study it and if fire had been invented, you know, that single cell amoeba, the very, very first one would move away from fire in order to save its life. And it has no arms, no legs, no spinal column, no brain. And that's the origination of fear. You know, it's such a primal part of who we are. It's in the oldest part of our brain. It's in every single cell of our body. And if we don't have a healthy relationship with that, we don't have a healthy relationship with ourselves. We've got to stop fighting it or fighting ourselves. We've got to stop so, ignoring it. We're ignoring ourselves, the truth of life.
0: Let's end on, the, uh, on this note. So, uh, Kristen, could you please tell everybody, um, at the end, I always ask every guest of mine five uh, quick questions, but um, before I ask those, please tell them uh, where can they connect with you, work with you, buy, find you on the social webs, and so on and so forth.
1: My book is The Art of Fear, Why Conquering Fear Won't Work and What to Do Instead. It's red and white. Um, my website is kristenolmer.com. E-N-U-L-M-E-R-K-R-I-S-T-E-N. And I have a free fear and anxiety assessment on my website. So if you go there and take it, you'll get one of four colors. And you can read about your unique pattern with your own fear. And you can start the process of trying to decipher it. Um, and, and unlike most uh, assessments, I actually give a tremendous amount of content at the end of it instead of just trying to sell you on something. So you'll, you'll get a lot of insights. So please do that. Um, I have ski camps, I work one-on-one with people, I have live events, um, I'm, I give lectures around the world, like this is my life, I've devoted devo- my life to it, and I realized that my ski career was only a way to provide a unique education that could bring me to the point where I can offer these unique concepts to people.
0: Got it. So, um, the first out of the five question is, um, What are the three books that had the greatest influence on your life?
1: The Power of Now
0: Hmm.
1: by Eckhart Tolle. Um, I realized that fear is not the only thing that can take you into the present moment. There's other things that can take you into the present moment. And that was really profound for me. And it helped me walk away from my ski career. Um, Conversations with God. Mm-hmm. It's another one of my favorites. Um, it shifted me from a me-centric to a universal-centric um, view of the world. And, uh, and I don't consider myself religious, but I consider myself very spiritual. I consider myself a spiritual artist, actually, when I work with clients. And believe it or not, Freedom of, at Midnight is a third book um, about India at Independence. And it just made me voraciously curious about the world and people.
0: The second question is, um, what are the three movies that you have enjoyed the most?
1: Oh, geez. The Red Violin. Um, uh, Hangover. The Hangover. (laughs) 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 Got to throw a comedy in there. And Fight Club. Fight Club is actually my favorite movie of all times, not just because Brad Pitt is so hot, but, um, <laughs> wait, yes, okay, was Brad Pitt even in that? I don't know. Yeah, yeah,
0: sure. Thank sure, God, because sure.
1: that would be really embarrassing, but the intensity of what is captured in that movie is, uh, with just with the fighting, is people um, finding some sort of outlet to deal with their emotions. Maybe not the healthiest, but
0: yeah, not that yet, But <laughs> and it just, but it's a great film. It, one yeah. of my favorite. Films, so. It
1: made me. It made me feel really, really alive.
0: And you have to read the book. The book is fantastic. From Chapaloni, yeah. The okay. novel is great. So I, I want to have him on the show. So. <laughs> um, the third question is. What, a, what are the most useful products or services that you have bought in recent memory?
1: Besides Whichever my toaster, because I'm a carb addict.
0: <laughs> Besides your toaster. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Thank you. Um, most useful products.
0: Or hey, that's going to be
1: a really hard one. Um,
0: it comes to mind.
1: You know, I would say um, this this neck thing with it that I put beneath. I mean, I have Excellent. it's called a huck neck in skiing. Like when you jump off a cliff and you land and your neck goes like you get whiplash pretty much every cliff you land. So you can imagine that my neck is just destroyed. So it's 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 like a pump up machine where you you uh, lay on it and it, it, it puts more uh, um, curve in your neck so that it helps your neck more um boy i'm not a i'm not really a.
0: what's a company called where where this is made
1: i couldn't tell you i'd have to run downstairs and go get it but it's just a a, a, a it's, it has the word pump in it just type in pump neck and you'll find it um lasik eye surgery and uh uh dental floss
0: <laughs> <laughs> how's that i'm not yeah hungry. why not
1: yeah, I mean, there's lots of uh, there's lots of uh, teachers that I really appreciate, but I suspect that may be coming, too.
0: Mm. So uh, the fourth question is, um, what are the most important realizations you've had in recent years? And we had some guests who shared something deeply personal about their career, family life, relationships, time, travel. So, speak to anything you feel comfortable sharing with our audience today.
1: Oh, I'm an Enneagram eight. If you know what that means, I'll, I have no filter. Um, yeah. I'll make them all personal. Okay. Um, my realization is, my realization this morning is that if I want to have a healthy marriage, I have to learn how to. And people are going to hate me for this, but. Uh, submit to my husband as being the boss. Like my image of what it means to be a powerful woman has to change to include more of a role of just being a support system to a powerful man. That was a difficult one for me to, it kept me up last night. Um, Second one is uh, I realized when you write a book it's like, it brings out all sorts of insecurities. It becomes like a popularity contest. Like however many books you sell is in direct relationship to how much, how much people like you. And, uh, I mean, your message almost doesn't even matter sometimes. And, um, it, it brought up a lot of childhood insecurities for me of, you know, not having a lot of friends when I was a kid. Like I really didn't have any friends until I was 12 years old. I was very lonely and my, my parents were absentee parents. And, and so that really drove me uh, to block out my fear, first of all, but it drove me in my athletic career. But you know, if you're still using the same motivations in your 40s and moving into your 50s, that you had when you were a kid or in your 20s, then something's gone really wrong. And having my book come out made me realize that um, I'm still motivated by the same goddamn thing, which is trying to get people to like me. And it's it's really, I know that we're all like that. We're all human. We all want to not be rejected and actually have people like us and want to buy our book. But <laughs> it, it really is painful, you know and and hard and so i'm just really trying to come to terms with how big a part of my life has been about trying not to be rejected and trying to have people like me um and and maybe hoping that that motivation will run its course and something will replace it with a little bit of intention on my part served me well so far but i don't think moving forward it's serving me anymore um Third one, that uh, I was just going to say something about my mom, who's going to die soon. Uh, I have a real belief that it is our responsibility to take care of our parents past a certain point, because they took such great care of us even though she was an absentee parent and uh, my my uh, husband's father is really struggling right now, uh, doesn't want to live and uh, my mother is losing her mind and it's just breaking my heart. And I think that the third thing is that um, a, a measure of your character is how you treat your parents when they get old.
0: So, uh, Kristen, the last question for today is what would you tell your 20-year-old self?
1: Well, that one's easy. Um, merge with your fear. Be intimate with your fear. Don't ignore it. Only do the merging. Stop with the ignoring. And you will be an even better skier. You'll have less injuries, and you won't be burnt out after 10 years.
0: Chris <laughs> <laughs> and. Thank you so, so much for being so vulnerable on your, on the show and sharing your story, sharing your advice and speaking about all those different things today. And um, yeah, I really appreciated it. So thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> Great pleasure.
1: job. It's wonderful talking to you.
0: <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. If you liked this episode, please rate, review and subscribe. Also, make sure to share the podcast and tell your friends about it. Thank you so much for supporting the show. I'll see you in the next episode. Over and out.